Hello and welcome to the Modern Reformer podcast. The mission of the Modern Reformer is the education of the saints through the recovery of the historic faith. I'm your host, Mitchell Roten, joined by my co-host, Avery Roten. How we doing? Ahoy! 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 Are you, are you quitting that? <laughs> you know, I was trying to walk it back until you called me back, until you called me out on it, so. You're trying to phase it out. I'm trying to phase it out. What's happening to your, to your British accent? You gotta phase it out? <laughs> <laughs> What's happening to your British accent? <laughs> you gotta phase it out. Oh, we're starting off strong. You had a good week, Abe? Can't complain. Better than I deserve. It's a fact. How about you? A little snuffy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sure are. If I sound way better on radio today, it's because <laughs> I, I have a cold. I'm gonna need you not to snuff into the microphone. This is... It's a classy audience. I apologize if I did. You just did. <laughs> yep. My stinky shoes. <laughs> Another friend's reference. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good. Only the core members will get that. That's right. Core friends fans. Only the core friends fans. Not right, even on a serious note. <clears throat> this is the first chapter we broke in half. Yeah. A lot of. For obvious reasons. Very long. Yeah, it's very pivotal, this chapter. Um, very important that... Uh, you think these you doctrines are the central aspect or a central pillar of the Christian faith? Oh, absolutely. I was... Uh, I was listening to... The, I think it was Joe Beakey. It was Joe Beakey yesterday, and he said the, the church at large is great at knowing doctrine and doctrinal things. It's not great upon meditating upon them. Mm. So... We can use the terms and understand them, but and I'll lock myself in there. It's, it's deep meditation upon these points is going to reflect you into the very glorious nature of these things. So that will be my challenge to you as we go through these things. Um, the truths which are contained here are, are definitely worth your diligent meditation upon and to think very deeply about and be very transformative in nature how would you uh, <clears throat> how would you define meditation meditation would be a um a, a deep thinking that would bring forth application or logical consequence of all those things so it would be so in our time you know, <clears throat> we got this idea of meditation is like an emptying of the mind and oh yeah no kind of sitting in real quiet yeah. and waiting for something <clears throat> to hit you it's actually the opposite of that. Biblical meditation. Biblical meditation you know, is... when yeah. the psalmist says, I meditate on your law day and night. Mm-hmm. He doesn't sit and wait for something to come smack him in the head there. Yeah. Right. He doesn't empty his thoughts in, this, mm-hmm. in some pursuit of kind of a mystical experience. Biblical meditation would be really uh, taking the time to sit down and just think about a certain aspect of truth. So it's actually the opposite of, you know... What what people would think meditation is in our time, mm-hmm. Eastern meditation, right? Yeah, well, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, so you can take Christ the Mediator here in this chapter, and really, when you meditate upon it, that means just apply it to every facet and all its meanings, and understand those things and, and the application of them. <clears throat> How would you define mediator? Uh, a mediator, in a strict sense, is uh, like a go between between two parties. Um, in this sense, it's the fulfillment of the requirement of man. <clears throat> so, uh, man, as we went through in the covenants and 
last episode, man was created in the framework of a covenant, was created capable to fulfill that covenant and did not. So, remember when, uh, way back in chapter 7, when we said they didn't explicitly say anything about the covenant of works in the garden that God makes this covenant with Adam? It's presupposed, though. And, and I mean, clearly, right. he, here you have to really see how presupposed it is. If there, if Christ is the second Adam, then, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, without that, that's kind of the base understanding of why you need a mediator, why you're fallen, all those things. So this chapter really is the Christology, right? Uh, it, yeah, so it, it, his accomplishment and his person, it, it would be both those things. It's uh, Christology in the sense of uh, of what the Messiah must do and fulfill yeah. and, and how he's done that in, in his nature. So, yeah, both those things, all those things. How important is Christology? Well, the early church thought it was pretty important. Uh, many people's died. <laughs> With that on, it's very important. So without knowing who Christ is and what he does, how can you have faith in him? <laughs> how, how can you? It's not it's not Jesus the golf caddy that, that, that which we confess to know. Uh, it's Jesus of the Bible, and this is Jesus of the Bible. So you have to know the scriptures and what he's revealed in order to have true saving faith in, not, in uh, Christ. He says, uh, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Mm-hmm. That's Yahweh. So he he seems to think that it's pretty important. <laughs> and then when you rise from the dead, you know, if you don't think it's important, then we'll listen to you. <laughs> That's what I would say. Don't look at me when you say that. <laughs> You're the problem. <laughs> You're a big, big problem. So <clears throat> Paul instructs Timothy not to quarrel over words, be divisive. Watch out for those that cause division, that uh, stir up strife because they're always quarreling. And I, th- I think... Uh, so that that's just, uh, I think any contention over doctrine in our time is viewed that way. Like, oh, just let it be, bro. You know? There's no point in, in getting all up in arms about this guy who believes in Holy Spirit baptism being tongues or that Christ is actually just one with the Father and not a specific person. I mean, we just see a lot of mm, disregard, I think, for for biblical doctrine in our time. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, he says that in the context of it not being uh, damaging. So he also says to in Galatians, you know, if you um, if you circumcise yourself for salvation, just go ahead and emasculate yourself. Yeah, no. So you, you have all these things are said in context. And, That's for sure. And, and even even to Timothy, to content for the faith. Yeah. So he yeah. doesn't mean um, he doesn't mean just don't say anything to heretics or people that would blaspheme Jesus. He yeah. means among <clears throat> among brothers, there needs to be brotherly disagreement and striving with one another. Well, I think yeah. I think uh, any anybody that stands up and asserts things doctrinally, there's this <clears throat> stigma in our time of being divisive or being authoritarian or or whatever it may be. I think that's pretty common to see, you know. We, yeah. So, like, here's why the Jehovah's Witnesses aren't Christians insert that conversation and then see people just glaze over. Oh gosh, he's one of these fellows. Right. But the problem is, um, to, this is Christianity, right? (laughs) So to mess up, to fumble the ball on the doctrine of Christ is to not be Christian in it. At the end of the day, 
So we, we've got to we've got to come to the uh, the realization that you're called to know what Scripture reveals, mm-hmm. and that's everything. Mm-hmm. You're called to know that. Uh, called to confess it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Called to conf- So it's not enough for God to inspire it and say it. Mm-hmm. You must also confess it. Just because Christ is mediator doesn't mean that he's your mediator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, apart from, apart from you being regenerate and him standing as your mediator, so just because he is doesn't mean he's yours. Mm-hmm. We must confess these things. The church must confess these things. If if you don't like teaching in, in, on this level, we must understand this is what informs practice. Mm-hmm. That, that, so if you the, if you say practice I, comes out of the piety, a big thing in our time <clears throat> is love. That's what's propagated. This would be anti-love to say that you're wrong is not loving, something like that. Yeah. So to have right. the actual biblical love in Christ that the Bible prescribes and de- describes many places, to have that unity, a bond of fellowship as brothers and sisters in Him, you actually have to be in Him. You have to know Him. Yeah. So second, so it would actually yeah. bind us together in love. It's uh, it is doctrine, right? It, it I know it, it seems counterintuitive. Um, all the secular uh, arguments against religion is that oh, it's just so divisive, it's dogmatic, it causes division against people. And they're dogmatically saying that, by the way, and uh, <laughs> yeah. dividing equally, if not more, right. than, than any religion. The yeah. secular state is a, it's a unified mm. bunch, that's mm. for sure. And so they, they don't cause any. It's death, amazing maybe. how this division. Truth versus error, uh, righteousness and unrighteousness, this natural division of true and false, if you want to say it like that, it's unavoidable. You can hate it, you know, hate division all you want, but in saying this is what divides, this is what unites, you divide. <laughs> There's no hope. So the question really, at the end of the day, is um, authority and submission. So when we say that the uh, confession builds on itself, <clears throat> It starts out with the scriptures, and if the scriptures are our standard, we either submit, understand the authority that is intrinsic to the scriptures, and submit to that, rightly or wrongly. So here, I think, is a great test case. I mean, it's very simple to understand why. Okay, I'll just make the same. Like, why are Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, a lot of Charismatics, why are they not in the faith? Because they don't understand Christ. You know. And it's not necessarily that they don't understand him at all. It's that they don't have the full, the whole Christ, right? Plug a resource there. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called The Whole Christ. Very influential. About the doctrine of Christology primarily and also his work and how it comes down to his people. Mm. So, long story short, I think it's easily misunderstood this idea of a very central focus on what the Bible says and being very like detailed about it, I think there's just a natural like um, shying away from that because of the division aspect of it, uh, which is very unfortunate. Because this idea of division and uh, not having unity with everyone on the face of the earth is unavoidable. You know, even the postmodern bunch that says there ain't no such thing as truth, ain't no such thing, ain't no such thing. Very divisive. <laughs> so. Ain't no such thing. Yeah, I mean, so this chapter you can't disagree upon, um, and then it not be foundational to Christianity. There's other doctrines you can disagree upon that doesn't cause division. This isn't one of them. 
Yeah. So uh, there's a, there's a difference between godly division, which would separate truth from error, and there's another sort of division, which that you just seek to not strive with one another, mm-hmm. and you have to biblically discern those things. So yeah, and it's not that hard to do. No, it's not. Second John says that uh, that love is the keeping of the commandments. So that's what love is. It's it's obey it's obedience to the law of God. That's what it means to love your neighbor, to love your wife, to love God. Is to act according to His commandments. So we have a commandment to strive to one another. So if you if uh, if someone is truly in Christ, you are legally obligated to them as a brother to bear burdens and to do other things. It doesn't mean what we've lost in our time is our ability to disagree mm-hmm. about things and to strive and to actually submit ourselves to the scriptures and not be offended and yeah stuff like that. Both the ability, I think, to... It, within within brotherly context. Yeah. Both the ability to defend one's position, articulate it biblically, and then also the ability to listen to someone else articulate theirs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think the Presbyterian Baptist divides a great example, which that's going to come up again. I don't know. In this chapter, I think, but uh, even even within those camps, you know, you see certain members of each respective party in debate or whatever it may be, and some are much better at doing that than others, right? So there exists in both camps those that say, "Hey, these people, nope, they're not in. <laughs> we can't fellowship with them at all." From the Baptist and the Presbyterian side, you know, and then you see people that are like, "Oh, it doesn't matter at all, really. Who cares?" which is kind of both ends of the spectrum. I think you also see, but I think what's biblical is, yeah, we do have this disagreement, but uh, it's not a substantive disagreement. It's not that they say Christ is not God, right? So, Yeah, so just in the same way that you need fatherly forgiveness mm-hmm. throughout your life is you confess to God after your conversion as a father. You repent to him as a father. You should come to one another and strive with one another as brothers in Christ. Okay, <clears throat> so... Getting into flip the tube. Flip the tube. Screensaver. <laughs> <laughs> Paragraph six. Point six. So this is a massive point here. Uh, I think one we need to spend some time on. Paragraph six. <clears throat> this is chapter eight, Christ the Mediator. We split it in half. Point six. <laughs> Just letting you know. Part two. Part two. Part two. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices, wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yeah, I think six is going to tell you the importance and often here, and this is just kind of a logical conclusion that people come to, that God's outside of time. Mm-hmm. And in one sense that he is, obviously, in another sense that he's not. So when we say that God's outside of time, that doesn't mean that he works outside of time. Right. So, well, he does. But once time begins, right? So, So Christ actually has to come and step into time. And do these things, even though it's eternally decreed, and because it is eternally decreed, it is eternally sure that that will occur. It's not a happenstance. But it does still have to take place inside of time. So God doesn't work outside of time. 
Right. So it's not it's not as if God back to the future is this thing. This is the reason it's important to understand a decree forward. He doesn't back and forth hop like, oh, I made a mistake, so I got to go back and change it. Mm. Yeah, that's the we talked in the decree episode uh, about the final destination model. Yeah, yeah right. right. So it's it's uh, you got your part, he's got his part, and uh, yeah, he's just doing the best he can. He's trying in the final destination model, uh, which again, final destination is a is a film, and it portrays <laughs> fate. That's what it portrays. That's pretty much what I guess fatalism taken to it's like its most Hollywood esque mm-hmm. conclusion. So fate, fatalism, <laughs> fatalism, true fatalism. Those, all those guys in Final Destination One would have died on the plane. That's true fatalism. You don't escape it. Uh, fate, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, so it fate has to correct itself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Fate. The, the pagan idea of fate is that hey, it's written, but uh, we'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see. We have to see. Yeah, I mean, so here he he talks about the, the securing of this mediatorship, the securing mm-hmm. of this atonement before the world begins. So what this, <clears throat> I think. The question, the the practical kind of pastoral uh, ground level theology here is uh, how did Moses go to heaven? So I think it's clear by the transfiguration, okay? So you see Jesus take Peter, James, and John up to this mountain. He reveals his divinity. Well, you can think of Hebrews 11 as well. Oh, sure. But he reveals his divinity to them very clearly in a physical manifestation of some kind. Very amazing to think of. Long story short, Moses and Elijah are there. Clearly, they're there as heavenly men. They, they've entered into the presence of God. And they obviously, they represent something as well. But I think the men are there. They see Moses and Elijah. They went to heaven. Yeah. So Clearly, Elijah went to heaven. No yeah. contest there. <laughs> so, so yeah. how'd that happen? Well, that's, and I think it's a... Yeah, so it's it's secured by the efficacy of Christ, as it says, and it's retroactive in nature. Mm-hmm. So Christ is slain in promise in a decree before the foundation of the world, has to come into the world, wrap himself in flesh, live and fulfill the law, uh, every jot and tittle, and then make that atonement. So apart from that atonement, there is no actual forgiveness. He can't simply decree it and not bring it to pass inside of time, and that's sufficient. So there was no payment made. As far as time's concerned, all the uh, people slice it up and say Old Testament saints, all the people that lived and died, which are an amazing amount of people that were uh, saved in the New Testament sense of understanding, that were regenerate, had a new nature, and then were uh, in union with God like we are in some way, they were saved by the same way. That we are. That, that, mm-hmm. And that, again, we, we got in a little bit in chapter 7 to dispensationalism and covenant theology and big picture understanding things. And most dispensationals would believe that. I mean... Now. That's, that's, um, most would. Most, most would. would most would say that. So. Yeah, well, because it's so clear. I yeah. Think. So, Christ is the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man. And that that's not after his incarnation, right? He's always only been that. So... The challenge, I think, intellectually and, and systematically, is that he does he, he didn't die for a long time. <laughs> like, yeah. The atonement was not actually made, and that's what I think that's really the heart of what they're addressing. Yeah. So he, the Yeah, he's substantially there in type and in type and picture. So you can get your arms around him 
and see him and trust in him in promise and type and understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we think of as New Testament believers, especially as Baptist New Testament believers, we, we tend to think of old covenant bad, new covenant good. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the default position. That's just kind of like the air you breathe. What you should think of is old test, old covenant good, new test, new covenant better. So old testament good, new testament better. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's that's the way you should see it. So it's not as if Christ is unknown to the Old Testament people, or or that his work or his uh, all these things are are completely foreign to them because they're not. They're not. Now you can read Hebrews eleven and clearly say all that faith in which they had was in Christ. Mm-hmm. Abraham sees his day. Moses proclaimed him. He says. It's this idea of communicated. So mm-hmm. Christ was communicated to the elect, and the elect here clearly is just the people of God, the people that are regenerate. Mm. And he's been communicated in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed. So I'll say this. The sacrificial system, as we understand it, uh, doesn't come into the scriptural narrative until Exodus, you know, mm-hmm. and really not hardcore detailed until Leviticus. Now, mm-hmm. hang on, hang on, hang on. But <clears throat> you see in Genesis 3, God, <laughs> hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, hang on. I think, I think that's the general consensus of, you know, you don't, yeah, here I'll... it is systematically presented. So, yeah, okay. but in Genesis 3, you see sacrifice made by God, number one, to clothe Adam and Eve. They make the figs, fig loin, loincloths of some sort, you know, and God clothes them with something better, animal skins. Implication, God makes the first sacrifice. And a, a pretty big implication, but one I think that's valid, is that he demonstrates this idea of sacrifice for sin to them. And then from that point forward, you see sacrifice everywhere and and it's not systematically presented as in this is what it means this is who does it like it is in exodus and leviticus which by the way moses is two thousand years away from adam roughly right wouldn't you say yeah yeah so you see the sacrificial system in operation and it's greatly it's greatly clarified and and added a lot of positive things to it mm-hmm. inside of the mosaic uh covenant there mosaic administration of of the covenant so so you see in job for example job offered sacrifices for his children job most biblical scholars would say is around the time of abraham you see abraham offering sacrifices you see jacob you see the priest <clears throat> Melchizedek. yeah that's another so you one. have a priesthood beforehand so. uh, basically every yeah. every noah sacrifices th- th- this consistent yeah. theme of sacrifice and the real if you had to boil it all down, uh, that substitution. Substitution is them for me, it for me, ultimately Christ for me. So the um, doctrine of penal substitution, that is Christ taking the punishment, is not new. Christ doesn't come and start a new religion and say, you know what, I know you guys thought um, that you work your way up to God, you do more good than you do bad, right? which maybe some of them did think that at the time, or that you're born right. You live right. None of the elect thought that. No. Say it that way. None of the true Christians would have ever said, you know what, I'm taking this law and I'm doing it, man. And I'm, yeah, for sure. I'm adhering to this sacrificial system and that's my hope. Mm-hmm. But no, that that was a very common position, even though it wasn't um, the true position <laughs> ever. And that's what this point is. 
it's that uh, true religion, uh, true right worship of God has always been the same, though it may look a little different, a lot different in some cases, but uh, basically, yeah. there's only one way of salvation, and that didn't start in uh, 33 AD that way. There's mm-hmm. always only been by grace through faith uh, all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, I mean, so the sacrificial system goes back to creation mm-hmm. um, in one form or another. After the fall. It, correct, yeah, after po- post, what is that, uh, superlapsarian, or is it infra, I never remember, but after the fall. So so after the fall, you, you immediately have the sacrificial system uh, introduced by God himself when he slaughters the lamb. Now, you don't have all the positive commands, you don't have further revelation of those things, but you have it there in operation. So that sacrificial system, if you're under the new ke- uh, under the new covenant, it's still in operation. Mm-hmm. That still we still have a sacrifice. Okay, it's Christ that hasn't gone away. It's not like that has <clears throat> abolished itself. There's still a priesthood. Yeah, Hebrews says Hebrews says once for all, once for all, right? Still ongoing in one sense though, because it's still being applied. Yeah. Well, he ever lives to make intercession. That's ever, the other point. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, that first idea signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head that's genesis three fifteen. they use first uh, corinthians 4 10 hebrews 4 2 and the one i'll read first peter 10 to 11 first uh, peter 10 to 11 says concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories. Now that's in the ESV, and uh, I think I think what Peter's highlighting there is that um, there's always been this unified theme of understanding what we're really looking for ultimately is Christ Himself. And the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, as Peter says, they tried to figure it out in its fullness. That is, when they, you take uh, just one example, you take Moses. When he receives this very detailed and strict law understanding of things, he searches and inquires carefully as to what it really means, right? Did he did he did Moses and Aaron and the people really think that this is the this is the end? Like God has accomplished all that he wished to accomplish when he gives us this law. I don't and I, I think what Peter's saying here is no. They searched and inquired carefully as to what this really predicts, what it's, what's the substance of it, right? Where is it really headed? Yeah, I can't remember where it's at, but they said, you know, uh, sacrifices you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Uh, that's in Hebrews. It's a quotation from, from a psalm. Yeah. Okay. Right. So right there you see, I'm pretty sure that's a Davidic psalm, but so what you see there is you understand, David understands this. So well, Solomon, yet again, when he says, I'm going to build you this house, but I know you can't dwell in it. Yeah. So he understands the topological, the topological nature of what he's doing. He understands that. He, these people aren't dumb. So you we're going to I mean? do an episode on topology, right? Yeah, sometime. But six, I so the main things you want to take of six is it secured Christ's redemption, his elect. All those things are secured. All those things are secured before the foundation of the world. Um, but they have to come inside of time as well. And that, that's what you have. So so this idea of the serpent's head being crushed mm-hmm. is really the original prophetic utterance, if you want to say it like that. Promise, yeah. Prophetic. Promise, prophecy. Uh, that's really the fulfillment 
Um, yeah, of the, of the covenant made in eternity past there. So when we say uh, s- s- things like progressive revelation, what we mean is it unfolds. So contradictory revelation, like you might find in, say, uh, Mormonism or uh, <laughs> Islam. There you go. Right? That is, we used to like the Jews and Christians. We were good with them. Now we're not. Um, or we used to... Uh, be polygamous but now we're not right you see things like that all over the world what and that's not what we mean contradictory revelation or contrary revelation is we used to go to heaven because we killed goats and now we go to heaven because christ died right that's contrary that's one thing and another thing and they contradict Um, progressive revelation in the scriptures is it unfolds it builds on itself it's a clear and clear picture it's like when you go to uh, get your eyes examined and they say how about this and how about that Right, and you're sitting in that little chair with all that stuff. Progressively, it becomes clearer and clearer. Right, you start out and it's super fuzzy, and you're like, "What is this? Uh, number five or six? <laughs> number nine <laughs> or ten? Yeah. And and uh, that's a great analogy. I that think is a great analogy. it's extremely analogous to uh, the Book of Judges, the Book of Ruth, Isaiah, and, and as you see the layers of revelation, it becomes super clear and then you get into the new testament and it's like oh yeah it's a b x y z right there it is clear as day uh so that that's what progressive is uh, not that it uh, progresses in its um content in the sense of we used to do this and now we do that and that's when we say typology very easy to, to misunderstand that typology is a type of revelation to gain insight to gain understanding in a very real, concrete way. So when it says that these, um, the efficacy and the benefit is communicated, it doesn't mean that they understood that there would be uh, a, a Jewish carpenter necessarily hung on a cross for the sins of the world. They didn't necessarily understand the full detail of that. But what they did understand was that the Messiah would come and be the conquering uh, Savior um, to both forgive sins and make righteous. And that that's clear enough. That's clear enough. Uh, so anyway, uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that's a direct quotation from Revelation 13, 18. Being the same yesterday, today, and forever, direct quote from Hebrews 13, 8. So basically, this idea of the unchanging nature and revelation of God, the fact that the lamb, who is Christ clearly, was slain before the foundation of the world, shows you that this benefit, this efficacy, this way of salvation has always been the same. If he's truly slain in in one sense from the foundation of the world, then from the foundation of the world, salvation's always been the same, you know? Yeah, so you have it. That's the important thing to see, that that this atonement is retroactive. It stretches back to the beginning of time. So that's, uh, so Adam, when he's atoned for by God, is only actually atoned for in Christ. The, mm-hmm. the the reason in which that he gives the animal skins there is because uh, it's a placeholder for Christ. It's a way to illustrate his work and to show those things. So, I mean, you can think of it as Paul when he says uh, the law is but a schoolmaster. When he says law there, he means the old covenant. He doesn't mean... Um, law in the sense of like modern people use it he means the the law the old covenant system there is a, a schoolmaster in order to bring you to christ a tutor a way to show you these things 
So that's the reason that this covenant that was made is not, um, it's not a continual thing. So once the substance of Christ has come, as once his sacrifice has actually taken place inside of time and he's actually fulfilled this covenant, those things which were analogous to him no longer are have any meaning. Uh, it's actually, they become wrong to do. They become, um, border, they become blasphemous because then at that point in time, you want to go back and hug Christ's shadow. But the point of point six here, before we get too down in the weeds and that, like I said, that'd be a good typology episode. But what you want to see here is uh, is the is the covenant of redemption, right? We have to see that that it's at, 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 because God has decreed it and determined to do it in his own in His own self, that it will immutably, unchangeably come to pass. So it wasn't God trying to bring forth. Uh, uh, christ and then satan trying to stop him and then we'll see what happens that's not that's not what happened it is god brings forth these things and uses all those things to his glory you can also think of uh, um, the exodus when he goes to moses he said pharaoh's not gonna let you go but he's putty in my hand and i'm using to illustrate this Mm. it's the same thing with christ so christ is promised Christ is secured immutably before the foundation of the world. You can take Ephesians 1. He chose you in himself before the foundation of the world. And then, by the way of the Old Testament, he is shown in type and shadow, right, and to, to the point where you can grasp him enough substantively to be saved by him. And then you see the full revelation, Hebrews 1, now coming in his finished work upon the cross. That's what 6 is saying. And as we said before, that's the same today, yesterday, and forever. It's always been by Christ, and it's retroactive in nature. Yeah, retroactive meaning it it uh, reaches back, reaches back. So it reaches forward and back the right. atonement. Yeah, hmm. good. So the the rest of Scripture after the fall and the promise of the seed to crush the head of the serpent is. In one way, kind of oversimplified, but really also true, is it's the fulfillment of that promise, the rest of it, the rest of the whole deal. Fulfillment of, uh, of the promise to crush the head of the serpent. And that's what Christ does in in his incarnation, in his active, as we talked about, and passive obedience, is to destroy the uh, adversary. Yep. And, and, and by way of implication, to save a people, right? Yeah, so he crushes the head of the serpent at the atonement. Yeah, that's not something that's in the future. Nope. Okay, paragraph seven. Christ, <laughs> moving on from that one, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason and the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Now that is a mouthful a very hard to understand uh, wording. Now, here's, I think, what they're getting at here. Um, the union of Christ in a divine nature and a human nature, as we talked about that idea in the last episode, hypostatic union, this is very central to understanding um, Christ, who he is, uh, both in his human work and in his divine work in some sense uh i think you see this they don't quote anything like this even in where, where they went into this idea of two natures one person but that, that's the uh you know off the cuff easy 
orthodox way to understand that. So Christ is triune. God is triune. You have three persons, one being. Three subsistences, one being. However you'd like to slice that up. Three persons, one God. Then you have one person, two natures. And that, that's kind of the... That's in the incarnation. Right. Yeah, so, when, so what this yeah. means is that... All the erroneous thinking. Okay, I'll give you some erroneous thinking on this that sprung up and still is probably around in some circles. One, Christ is born naturally. He is a man made like all other men. And then God gives him special uh, grace. So there's a human person of Christ that exists naturally. Then somehow he's given the spirit of, of divinity. Right Now this is very popular. In uh, New Agey type circles, um, you hear, um, and I'll just, not to go down this rabbit hole, but you hear people like Jim Carrey, like Russell Brand, people like that, very well known in our culture, and they say things like the Spirit of Christ or the Christ. Jim Carrey says it? Oh yeah, he's New Age, hardcore. Uh, they talk about Christ consciousness. Uh, Richard Rohr. I love Dumb and Dumber. I know. This would be dumber. This would be dumber. The aspect. So theologically. So so Richard liar, liar. Richard Rohr kind of started this, uh, in a way. I mean, in one way, inherited. But he he's kind of the figurehead of this movement of uniting Christian terminology to New Age ideas. At the end of the day, this idea of um, what's that word? Um, syncretism. That's what I'm looking for. The syncing up of ideas. So. Um, in, in this movement, Christ consciousness is a big uh, buzzword, Christ consciousness. And all this really goes back to an incorrect understanding of Christology. And what it is, is that Christ was a normal person, and God gave him this Christ consciousness. Now, he's just a normal man like us, but he was able to achieve all these things because God gives him a divine nature. And really, in that worldview, the divinity that was already present within him comes out. And that, that's what you pursue in that movement. Um, Christ is actually one person, though. And that's what we're saying. That's why doctrine matters, theology matters. This is why. How do we combat this error from our perspective, from the perspective of biblical believers? Uh, it's a fundamental error. And the fundamental error is to, that's two persons, two natures, at the end of the day. So um, one person, two natures is... There's one divine, eternally existent person that takes on himself another nature. Not Jesus A, divinity, Jesus B, humanity, person one, person two, and the union between two different persons, two different entities, but the actual incarnation of deity taking on flesh, not a different person. Now, um, the unity idea is also extremely important. This means... That Jesus in his um, human nature and Jesus in his divine nature, though they're unmixed, they are fully united, right? Because it's one person. Again, this is a statement of the mystery in one way. But, um, yeah. Go ahead. So when you when you seek to um, uh, define the mystery of what you just explained, that's that's what heresy is. When, <laughs> so that's, you, what, that's you, what heresy is. Unless you define it right. So if the, the, this is the statement of the ministry. So we, I don't understand how one person can have two natures, but Christ does. I don't, I don't understand that. If I seek to explain that to you, that's, that's heresy. What you do is you state the mystery. So there's one person of Christ in the incarnation, 
with two distinct natures. You have the, 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 the human and divine, 100% God, 100% man. It's not 50-50, 70-50. It's not. It's not. 70 is. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so it's My not. The, yeah, that'd be a lot also. So it's not deified flesh. And it's and it's not you know uh, uh, it's not deified flesh or God humanity. It's truly those two things. Yeah, this this united c- into one person. Yeah, this struggle of art- so, yeah. ar- articulating this and understanding this goes back a long ways. Anselm wrote "Why the God Man." Um, again, Anselm don't agree with everything the guy said. His synopsis was uh, "Why is this important?" He went systematically. Why does it matter so much? Because one man, simply a human nature, unjoined to divinity, could never atone for the sins of someone else. Because they're infinite sins. Because they're infinite sins. Mm-hmm. And you have to have an infinite substitute. Yep. That's number one. But why, why man? Because man was made a promise and a covenant that yep. he broke. <laughs> there you go. That's, uh, that's why it's in this chapter. So in order yep. for Christ to be a mediator of a covenant with men, he has to become a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's, so the, so yeah. so it's important. People, people really like to act like Christianity is not unique in this in the scope of religious ideas or texts, scriptures. Um, it's laughable. Like any thinking person, let's just talk about. And again, I'm not a big uh, reason type guy anymore. More of a presuppositionalist. Okay. That being said, any thinking person. That could that, that being could, said that that could somehow you state it. <laughs> Here it is, baby. <laughs> Woo! So, so the uh, the difference between every sacred text and scripture, <laughs> the gap between them, is astronomical. The difference between doctrine of salvation, let's say, between Christianity and every other worldview slash religion, is is not even it's not even on the same playing field. Um, so. Every other religious system is very clear in its bottom line articulation. Do good, go to heaven, or whatever your concept of God slash heaven is. The ledger, at the end of the day, has to be marked. Now, we do see a very new agey thing where everybody's going somewhere, and it don't really matter, just do you, which is just um, not new in any sense. This idea that everything's going to work out. Seek pleasure. You know? That's very old pagan. So... Yeah. So long story short, this is very unique. Yeah. No other religion is super concerned with um, this definition on its idea of God. Why? Because no other religion is truly about God, the real God, the true God, the God who reveals himself and we submit to him. No other religion is really about that. So, yep. he, so when they say um, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature okay they use two scriptures i do think that are helpful Um, john 3 13 no one has descended into heaven except he who i'm sorry no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven the son of man they use acts 20 28 pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he obtained with his own blood so yeah, so the best way to think about that is is the one thing that's true of his one nature is not true of his other. So God and himself cannot die. 
Nor, God, yeah. So God, nor does he have blood. Nor does he have blood or a, or a body. Mm-hmm. In the incarnation, Jesus does. And he and as a man, he thirsts and hungers. As God, he does not. As a God, he knows everything. As <clears throat> as a man, he veils that understanding what is appropriate for men to know. Yeah, and I think I think what they're saying here is like, okay, we understand that. We we presuppose mm-hmm. the distinction of the natures. It's not loss and, of divine attributes. It's yeah. It's a veiling in the person with a man. So we what, went through that last episode. We did. So, yeah. And what they're saying here is sometimes you read things like Acts twenty twenty eight that says God purchased people with his own blood and what they're saying is that doesn't mean that god has blood right yeah they're holding up the fact that we already came to a conclusion on this and when you read this we interpret the clear by the less clear or the unclear mm-hmm. by the more clear and uh, so in john three thirteen, for example i think what they're trying to highlight is the son of man is usually a title and again that's a long conversation but usually a title that denotes jesus's humanity and uh it's a messianic title yeah yeah, but but a human Messiah. You're right. And yeah. uh, what <clears throat> what they're saying is he descended from heaven, and then in Acts twenty twenty eight, uh, it says God purchased you know people with His own blood. God doesn't have blood, so they're saying you can speak to the person of Christ now after the incarnation. You can speak and you can say Christ. That's the unmixed nature of the uh, of uh, that's the unmixed nature of the person of Christ. Right, but the person mm-hmm. of Christ, you can say on the one hand he doesn't have blood, and he does. Yeah, yeah, so you have to speak yeah. to, to, to both yeah. natures. That's some, that's the reason they're saying that. And they're saying sometimes Scripture speaks of Christ in general as a person and gives yeah. him attributed denotion of the other nature. So Right, so the Son yeah. of Man, being a loosely his humanity, um, descends from heaven. Now, we know his human nature was not present in heaven before and that he takes on a human nature in the Incarnation. That's what they're getting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that God uh, purchased things with his blood. We know... Before the incarnation and the unity of the human nature, Jesus was fully God, um, incomprehensible, and not bound in a form, right? So the scripture um, shorthand can can talk about Christ after the incarnation and his completion of redemption. You can say um, something of his person that may only be true of one nature. I think that's what they're getting at. Yeah, which is, that's which that's is, what they're getting at. Yeah, which is extremely important. So, so does Christ bleed and get tired in his humanity? Does in his Christ humanity. govern the universe in his divinity? Yeah. Yeah. Both of those things are true in the one person. Yep. That's the mystery. Okay. We're not yeah. saying, hey, this is how it works on Tuesday afternoon at four o'clock. This is what it looks like. Yeah. Now back to the real point. <laughs> Christ in his work of mediation acts according to both natures. This is massive. Massive. So once you, once you establish that last little point there, which we've hopefully we've established to some, some degree. The real point is Christ in his act of mediation, that is, going between God and man. He does so in both natures. He does so as a man, and he does so as God himself. A true mediator able to do mediation between two parties that are so vastly apart. Christ only. When we say Christ is the only mediator between God and man, it's because he's the only one that could, ever. He's the only one that truly could mediate God's uh, side <laughs> and man's side because he has both natures. Amazing. Uh, and also, that's very simple. Like, what, why is it that Christ is the only mediator? Because he's the only one qualified. Who else could possibly go stand in the presence of God and say, you should save these people? Like, wow, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if God himself, right, if the Son of God stands on God's side and the Son of Man 
stands on man's side. Then we have a true mediator who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and at the same time um, allow God to be just and the justifier of those who have faith. Like this, this is the central core of why this stuff matters. Uh, so anyway, mm-hmm. anything else on seven? Nah, we can talk about that all day. I think I think we got it. Okay, we got it. We got it. Paragraph eight. <clears throat> I mean, enough to get you going anyway. Get you going. Get you going. Paragraph eight. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to produce it or procure it. That's the greatest definition of uh, predictive redemption I've ever heard. Yeah. That's exactly what that is. Whew. So <laughs> hang on a minute. Before we get into it, let's just read a couple things. On the idea of uh, making intercession, John six thirty-seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Now they use John ten fifteen to sixteen, which is a good shepherd. John seventeen nine, which is the high priestly prayer. Uh, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you give me for their years. Romans five ten. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Um. Moving forward. The mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey. John seventeen six, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They've kept your word. Ephesians 1, 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. 1 John five twenty, we know that the Son of God has come. He gives us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Wow. <laughs> there was. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he yeah. governs their... Okay, now, we, I think we'll take some time on this particular point when we get to it, but governing their hearts by His Word and Spirit. They only use one scripture, that's Romans 8. Um, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then Romans eight fourteen. This is a massive point. Um... I'll start off by saying if you deny point eight, so if you're a, if you're a, a, a whiskey Calvinist or a one fifth Calvinist or whatever you want to say there, when you just believe in perseverance, mm-hmm. if you just believe in that and then you deny point eight, you have no logical reason to believe that. So, so let's, wh- let's get into that. What okay. I what I mean is if if you walk around and you teach eternal security. Okay. If, if you teach perseverance of the saints, most likely eternal security in the area. If you teach eternal security, but you deny point eight, you have no logical basis to believe anything of what you just said. Why is point eight so often denied? Because uh, it's the implications of that upon human autonomy and will. Okay, what do you mean? That means that now the work of redemption is wholly dependent upon God and his willing free grace. And not upon provision and man's 
own inherence and ability to grab hold of the provision. Um, so what he means is all them whom that he dies for, all those whom he all the obtained eternal redemption for, all those who are in the in the covenant of redemption in the past that are actually atoned for, all those people actually come to salvation. Um, which would mean that it excludes some, right? That means that unless you're universalist, that means God did not procure for every single person uh, salvation, which he's free not to do because he's God. So people wish to hold on to their own autonomy and say, well, I know I'm in God's universe and that he does all these things, but I don't want to relinquish this control or this ability to see myself in that way. The only way in which you and I can, can have assurance is if point eight is true. If, if point eight is not true, then you and I have no guarantee that, that we will inherit uh, eternity with Christ. If it's not solely based upon him, his mediation, his atonement, his work, uh, if it's not based upon that alone, then you and I have no guarantee of it because that means we <clears throat> cooperate with it. Anything that we and cooperate with it is changeable, is yeah. mutable. He's not assured. Anything in which God does, just as Christ was assured before the foundation of the world, anything that he does is certain, and you have assurance of. So the last part uh, is, is the I think, the sticking point, without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. That's when we say this is a good articulation of uh, definite atonement, limited atonement. Um, effectual atonement, however you want to slice that up. That means when Christ dies for someone, they go to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because so, of who he is. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the real, I used to get real tore up back in the day uh, because the way it's often framed is Christ didn't die for everyone, and that's unfair, and all those people that he didn't die for, um, super sad about it. Here's the thing. If Christ dies... He says, to tell us die, it's finished. The veil of the curtain rips from top to bottom to be inclusive uh, to God is now, the way to God is now open in that sense. Atonement has been made. And if it's been made, then it's done. When he says it's finished, it's actually finished. So the conditionality of um, that, this idea of because uh, this is the uh, this is the other perspective, and here it is: atonement has been made for everyone universally, and all they have to do is come to receive the benefit. Right? If that's the case, then atonement actually has not been made. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? If it's a potential atonement that universally potentially makes everyone savable, then nothing actually happened. We're actually waiting to see who will come. Yeah. If atonement has actually been made, then it's done. <laughs> if he okay. came to make salvation potentially possible or actually procure salvation, that's the real question. So the question, all the other sideline questions, they're important. And I think we dealt with a lot of those in episode, whatever it was, about the decree, episode four, maybe three or four. Uh, all those are important questions and very important. I'm not diminishing that. What I am saying, though, is the ultimate question is what did Christ do? in the atonement did he make salvation potential or did he actually procure it so they're saying uh, this confession says yeah he procured it that means that before he came there was an elect people that he died for and after he came and died there's an elect people that he died for forward right (laughs) 
it's a done deal. Um, and you must in the mind of God. You must, yeah. So that's important to distinguish between a redemption accomplished and that's accomplished upon the cross and redemption applied. So just in the same sense that it's done before the foundation of the world, it's secured upon His atonement and His telestai, His finished work, and then it comes into time at your conversion, whenever that is. Yeah. So when you say that, uh, you can't really believe in eternal security without this. <clears throat> So it's a strong man to say, well, Calvinists believe you're never lost. Like I don't, that's, a right, right. that's a strong man. Yeah, that That's is. not what we're saying. You, you must have biblical categories for these things. You must biblically understand these things. And that's going to be redemption accomplished, redemption applied. Yeah, so there's a time when every person uh, is born in Adam and is lost in that sense. Um, the only difference, yeah. the only difference, of course, between... Uh, that's a, yeah. So you're either left in that state yeah. justly by mm-hmm. reprobation, or you're not by by grace, which cannot be demanded. By the way, if it can be demanded, and you're outraged that these people don't receive it, then it's something else. It's not grace. It's not a free gift. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't be demanded. So it's either reprobation, or you're left in that state justly, justly to to receive your penalty, or you're given extraordinary grace in order to be redeemed from that state. And and eternally with the Father, right. So and th- th- so when we think people get all up in arms about that, like oh, I just can't understand reprobation. I can't understand election. I understand very clearly why a death row inmate needs to be executed. Mm-hmm. I understand that very clearly. I don't understand if you know if you have the mind of God and you truly see anybody for who they truly are that you could die for them. Why they're a sinner? Christ mm-hmm. says yeah, grace is beyond fair. And I think that's what's... It's incomprehensible. This yeah. is the meditation part. It's incomprehensible when you sit down and think about it, of of, of, of what it truly means to be atoned for. Full atonement, can it be? Oh, what a Savior. Yeah, so free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. They use John 3, 8. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. We'll come back to that. They use Ephesians 1, 8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This idea that God lavished upon us grace, knowledge, uh, love uh, in Ephesians, all those things. This idea of lavishing is just the incomprehensible nature of this. That uh, we who were dead in trespasses, born in Adam, rightfully awaiting condemnation and eternal judgment, that group saved. Yep. Um, and it, all coming from God. It makes no logical sense. That's the real hard part about it. Is logically, it makes a lot of sense. This idea of general atonement and uh, potential salvation to anyone who will come. It makes sense because that's what humans do. Um, when, when Romans says that Abraham's salvation was not given to him as a uh, payment or wage, it was not given to him as his due, but it was given to him by by faith. What there's no way, and I, you know, there's no way to to really meditate, right, and 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 think that if you come any part of the way to God, that that's not due to you in some sense. We understand that it's just a little, just a touch. We got it, but. Um, all the raving against this idea of God being the ultimate Savior and the only one who saves, and the you know that the atonement being made for uh, a real atonement being made for a select group, the the ravings against that. Now you want to go back to typology? Who who was the Yom Kippur? Who was that for? 
Israel. Israel. How do you get around that? I never figured that one out. If we're going to actually take the typology seriously to illustrate a point, what does it illustrate? It, take, it illustrates particular redemption. That's what it, that's what it illustrates. Yeah, that, that the high priest goes in to make atonement. For Israel. Not a general atonement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So um, <clears throat> this idea, in such manner and ways that are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Uh That's pretty much, I think, saying that the the way in which he brings it to pass is consistent, right, with with his attributes and his nature. These things are wonderful and unsearchable in their time, right? Absolutely. So, uh, so the, the, we've talked about. We've kind of jumped all over this point. We got. I got a little fired up. There. That's all you, man. But yeah, no, I apologize. But he does certainly and effectually, that's what we're talking about, apply and communicate the same. So when he says communicate the same, the the, the atonement of Christ, when it's made for you, actually comes forth in time and place in justification. And that justification actually communicates that to you. So now that you are justified, it brings forth sanctification. You can think Romans 8. Why is this secured as the atonement is now done? He makes intercession. So not only does he finish the atonement he continues to make that intercession uh until the completion of redemption so that intercession and that mediationship is not a one-time thing it's an ongoing process in which god or which christ continually transforms you into the new nature you've received at justification um so here what's in view is just uh, the ultimate question of atonement at the end of the day it's uh, Christ, yeah. and the reason it's in this chapter, and not the chapter on justification, sanctification, all that, is because this is about the work of God. It's a prerequisite. Yeah, so it's, it's a you prerequisite have to for this. for Christ being a mediator. Yes, it is obtaining yeah. a humanity. It, it yeah. is. It is. He must atone for that humanity. That humanity is guilty. It must not be guilty. Yeah, and that's what he does here. Um, now, real quick on this idea of governing their hearts by His Word mm. and Spirit. Now, this is massive. So this is what makes you a child of God, the rebirth of the Spirit. That's what you quoted John 3. And the other thing in which... Now, the, they they actually use Romans 8, all who okay. are led by the Spirit of God or sons of God. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Well, that works too. <coughs> Take those two yeah. in tandem, John 3. Yeah. yeah. So that's what that means, is that, uh, that the Spirit imparts to you a new nature at your born from above, your rebirth, your regeneration... And that's what makes you a child of God. That's what gives you a right to be a child of God. Mm-hmm. Because now the atonement is efficacious inside of time for you. It's applied to you. And now because of that, you have legal right to be in the family of God because he's grafted you in. Um, all those things. And he governs you by the Spirit. The Spirit illuminates you. We understand in, this, in the, on the chapter of Scripture, it says that Scripture is clear in itself, but it will not be believed apart from the Spirit. That is, it's incomprehensible to natural man, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, apart from that special work of the spirit of regeneration. And because of that, now how does Christ govern you? We say that Christ is with you until the end of the age. How is he with you? He's with you in two ways, and that's the governing of the spirit, which he's placed in you, which Christ, Abba, Father. And it's also by his word. The rule of Christ in your life is through the word of God. That's how he governs you. That's how he is your Lord in a messianic sense is because he gives you his word. He gives you the, his spirit 
And he guides you in that. The job of the Spirit is the illumination of Scripture, the application of Scripture, and the guiding of you into that revealed truth. That is what he does. That is his purpose. It is, it, that is how he governs you in those two ways. So apart from God actually revealing himself in a clear way inside his word, you have no lordship of Christ. You have none. We don't know what he says. We can't know him apart from that. You see why that's so important. They don't, they don't quote this, but uh, John 1, 12 to 13 is what I would say to really highlight this. This idea of the Spirit and the rule of Christ and all that. This idea of regeneration, preceding faith, the whole Reformed idea. To all who did receive him, John 1, 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Yeah. Both things being true. So point eight. So, so, yeah. so, so you receive him. Amen. <laughs> but they, the reason, and I, I mean, to me, it's not even a stretch. John, 12, John 1, 12 and 13 fully displays this idea of both aspects of salvation, both the temporal application by receiving and being indwelt and all that stuff that, you know, mm-hmm. and then 13 being yep. because it doesn't say because, but because you were born <laughs> not by the will of the flesh nor the will of man nor blood, but of God. And that's all brought about by, by the finished work and atonement of Christ. Yeah. So point eight, you can think of the order of salutis, the order of salvation. Uh, you also have at many points in there, the, the historic salutis, the history of salvation. So it's confessing both those things. Point eight right here is that you could say it's the order of solutions, uh, as in this is the order of events inside of salvation. First, uh, the sending of the Son before the foundation of the world, uh, his incarnation, what that means, and then the accomplishment, the finishing of that work in point eight, <clears throat> and what it means now that it now is done. Yeah, so just real quick, this idea of governing their hearts, as Avery's already said, uh, <laughs> Christians have a governor real christians so the guy that says i'm a christian but i don't care much for church how common is that my friend Uh, (laughs) how common is that have you not heard that probably this week or you know i'm spiritual not religious uh everything in between those two statements okay uh so we live in the south pretty much and our immediate context is full of nominal christians nominal meaning in name only that is, everybody says, I'm a Christian, primarily. The guy who sells you drugs says, hey, man, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Here's some hash. Right? <laughs> so what, and I, I personally experienced, okay, from my own, and again, I don't like using personal experience, but I've been that. I have, so I understand that. And it's because of a very limited knowledge of God that you, that you can think that. Because what you're told is God loves you just the way you are. He lives for you. He exists for you. He wants you to be happy and healthy. Mm. And that's who God is. So you think, why would I, what is there to not say I'm a Christian then? Of course, that sounds great. He's on my side. He's for me, right? He loves me. And everybody that's nominal in name only, the, I think the connecting factor about about that entire movement, that entire manifestation into reality of nominal Christianity, 
the uniting factor is no doctrine, no depth, no meditation, no understanding, you know, um, a very limited knowledge. Um, so that, that, there's no governance of those people by the spirit through the word. That's not present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so because Christ actually accomplished this for you, he applies it to you. Yeah. So that so, means your justification by, by consequence now brings forth your likeness to Christ. Yeah. That's so all those means. that are justified will be sanctified. Mm-hmm. Um, all those that are babes in Christ become mature. There's no perpetual babes in Christ. Paul speaks against it. Yeah. You know, and what's interesting is the way Paul speaks against it is to say, you you should desire solid food, so get to it, right? You know, he, do, he doesn't say, hang out on the couch, the spirit will work it out. You uh, you remember Days of Thunder? Yeah, with Col- was it Cole Trickle? Cole Trickle. You remember what was uh, what was his race? What was his pit cruise guy's name? It was Robert Duvall. But I can't remember his name in the movie. Me neither. But anyway, so he goes to him, and they're out in the field. You remember he's at the, they're at his ranch. This is in the opening of the film. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think so. Okay. But anyway, he goes to him, and he says, "You see that dog right there? Yeah, that's the opening. Of the that's film. the opening." He said, "That's the best coon dog east of Mississippi." Mm. And he said, "I didn't teach him anything. Mm-hmm. You know why he's the best coon dog east of the Mississippi? Because he has a nature. <laughs> he has a new, <laughs> he has a nature that would allow him that by nature he chases coons and he does that well." Mm. By nature, because of your justification, you have received a new one. That's what. That's why he can say that. Because you have received this new nature, you will put it on. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like when you say, "Will a Christian obey?" It's like asking a cheetah to chase a rabbit. It's like he can't do anything else. He doesn't desire anything else because his nature has been changed. Now there's a war with the flesh, <clears throat> and there's a war with the sin nature. Don't get me wrong, but that's the change of nature. So justification is a rebirth. It's a receival. It's a receiving, it's a creation of a new nature made in Christ, right? It's regeneration. It's regeneration. Yeah. Um, so because of that, you will put him on. You will strive to be, you will be sanctified because that's the only thing the new heart can do. Now, that's not all at once, and that's not without many uh, tears and, and, and yeah. wars and, 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 and everything else, but th- that, fi- that's, to, that's the nature of the Christian. Yeah, to finish up my thought on the nominal <laughs> thing, <clears throat> I'm not in any way diminishing the love of God that the Bible holds up clearly. And the, the, the very limited truth that come as you are is, is accurate. I think the, the biblical way to say that is uh, you're a sinner, so there's no need to try to be moralistic and then come to Christ. That's correct. What people take it as is God loves me as a weed dealer. Yeah, I love me too, so that's yeah. great. Yes, we both love me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. So uh, there's no repentance in, so, that, in that model, right? Yeah, so, so what needs to be said is that the love of God is only in Christ. Yeah. Only in Christ. There's no love apart from Christ. There's no salvific, saving love without And, and that in Christ. in Christ you have a governor in that. You have a Lord. Yeah. You Which have is a the Lord. Same, same idea. Yeah. You, you have a Lord that is over you. And the way that what this confession says, and I think it's accurate, is the way that you can tell who's uh, in, the, in, in Christ— <laughs> is by their by their obedience i mean at the end of the day that's as biblical as it gets they'll know you by your works a good tree bears good fruit a bad tree bears bad fruit they can tell mm-hmm. right yeah and there's a million things we can fence with that like we've said that doesn't mean that yeah. that's not sinless perfection nor is that yeah apart from struggle yeah but your nature has been changed and you are gradually transformed into the image of god yeah. into the image of christ Res- 
finishing in soul at your death, as your departure, finishing in body at, at the resurrection. Yeah. Christ has procured the resurrection. Yeah, he, those things will immutably come to pass. That means unchangeably come to pass. Because of his first resurrection, his first advent, now has secured for him the second. Yeah. That's so, part of mediation. Okay, well, yeah. Point nine. Point the, nine. Move the, on. That'd be good. The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not, may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Uh, so this is... Go the, ahead and read point 10. Read those two together. First Timothy two five. There's one. Oh, after that, one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There it is. <laughs> First Timothy two five, paragraph ten. This got any more brain busters? <laughs> brain busters. <laughs> this number and order of offices is necessary, for in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of His prophetical office. In respect to our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services. We need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us acceptable unto God. And in respect to our adverseness and utter inability to return to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. So why is Christ prophet, prophet, priest, and king? Because man needs a prophet, a priest, and a king. By necessity, Christ fulfills these offices. Um, he is the high priest. He is uh, of the line of David, king of king and lord of lords. He is the ultimate prophet, reveals <coughs> reveals the Father perfectly. I think uh, I think point 10 kind of defines yeah. these things for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you want to give a definition of prophet, priest, and king. What's so a prophet is one that speaks for God or reveals God. A priest is one that makes atonement. A uh, priest is one that offers sacrifice unto God. And king is one that lords and rules over his estate, rules over his kingdom. So <clears throat> that that's uh, the threefold offices held up in the Old Testament, uh, is what you have the Davidic kingdom. You have the Davidic promise, kingship, lordship given there. You have a promise given to David that there will be a king after you that will sit forever on your throne. You're given the priestly office uh, that must be fulfilled post-fall. These these things must occur. Christ fulfills that high priestly role. And you have prophet. Think of, think of Moses. Moses is the picture of this mediation of Christ that's fulfilled in Christ. He goes upon the mountain, does he not? He goes upon the mountain. He comes down and reveals God to the people. He says, here's his commandments that he's written upon stone. That's all a picture of what Christ as prophet does. You can think Hebrews Hebrews 1. Moses doesn't enter the the promised land. Christ does and and raises. So Christ fulfills all those things which man needs. It is illustrated in the Old Testament and it has come to pass in the person of Christ. Yeah. So prophet represents God to man. Priest represents man to God. Yeah. King represents king. (laughs) King represents ruler over that. Yeah. Purr. So, to the what they use for biblically for the office of prophet, John one eighteen. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Priest, Colossians one twenty one. You who were once alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds, he brings you to God basically, and, and 
also preach Galatians 5.17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Again, highlighting why we need priesthood. This is yeah. this is Galatians is talking, I think, I think, to to majority people who are regenerate and really struggling doctrinally, spiritually, with error and, and practice and all kinds of stuff. And he's saying, Yeah, you got a problem. <laughs> Galatians five seventeen is here's your problem. Same thing as Romans seven says. You have uh, this conflict, this inability to be perfect. So you need uh, we tend to think of the Christian life as I did my part, I'm going to heaven. Done. But the work of Christ is ongoing. Not that he's perpetually sacrificing, but that he continually intercedes. That's mm-hmm. very easily missed. So the atonement's made, that's done. That's a done, right. The intercession has to continue. You need continual. Uh, Sam Waldron, I, I was on his lecture, I think he put, like, I don't know if it's original to him or not, but he said you need continually, you need a continual fatherly repentance. So in the same way, when you grieve your father, you go to him and say, hey, sorry, help me to not do that again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so justification is legal in nature. It's a legal divine declaration. Sanctification is conforming into that, and that's gradual and completion upon the, re- the resurrection of your body. Mm-hmm. So because of that, salvation is not a moment in time. We, we, have to, we have to stop referring to it as it is. Now, justification and the securing of, of salvation is a moment in time. It's divine declaration, not something you grow in. Salvation itself is past, present, and future. You have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. You will inherit this salvation. And all that's obviously uh, procured only upon the work of Christ. So apart from his intercession, our justification would not take hold, would not last, would not make us like Christ. Uh without his ongoing intercession, our sanctification would not lead to the resurrection of our bodies. If we could be lost, we would be lost. Okay? If you can lose your salvation, you would have lost it already. There's not for one infinite second can you stand in the face of a holy God without mediation and and, and have any hope or anything other than wrath. Yeah. And I, I think that's really the heart of the gospel, man. Yeah. The reason it's good is because I can't, I, I actually need it. And I need it in a way that's eternal. <laughs> you know? I don't. Yeah, I need a high priest. Yeah. I need all those things. <laughs> I, I cannot do all those things, nor can anybody else. <laughs> yeah, I need, a, I need so a priest. So this, this idea of Christ's mediation, it, it's so massive. It's so multifaceted, right? That's, that's the struggle, is that we're not just saying he's the simplistic. He represents God and man in this media. That's true. But the depths of what he does, it's, it's uh, unfathomable. How great the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. I never really understood that, or at least I didn't begin to understand. I still don't fully understand that. I don't, but I didn't begin to understand that until I realized that God relates to man inside of a covenant, inside of a covenant framework that has uh, legal obligations, that has an actual defined system. Uh, before that, I was kind of just emotional, and it was like, I know that I did bad things because God said I did bad things, and now I need someone to make me not do bad things. So apart from a deep understanding of what it means to be in covenant with God, the mediation doesn't really didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Oh, yeah, it can't. Yeah. <laughs> because we failed a covenant and we stand condemned, 
and the more you understand it just completely upon meditation and understanding the more glorious christ comes to you and the more glorious he he, he becomes to you the more like him you wish to be and because he governs you through his word and because he governs you through his word and he, he puts in you his spirit crying abba father these things are secured these things will happen one way or another <clears throat> now there is progressive and there is uh, yeah. the so while there's so many denominations <laughs> the reason is that sanctification is progressive um, so you think there's a right one and that everybody's headed that way? Right, pretty much, one way or another. Is it the Baptist? I don't think it's... So <laughs> I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that why do you have all these disagreements and why is there so much strife? It's because sanctification is gradual. Um, that's that's the nature. It's in He deals with people gradually and you're transformed into his likeness gradually. Uh, all, yet again, securing from his justification. But that's the reason there's so much... There's so much... Uh, infighting and everything else is you must put these things on you must participate in the new nature given to you yeah <clears throat> so for the kingly office they use john 16 8 psalm 110 3 and the one i'll read luke 1 74 and 75 luke one's long uh, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days that is uh you hear the cliche and it's 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 a truth it's a truism that fear God, you won't fear men, right? You see that tattooed on the biker, <laughs> right? You, that's when Let's I say go bike. <laughs> when I say when I say it's a cliche, what I mean is that's in the back glass of you know many cars. It's tattooed on the tricep of many bikers, right? So so it's like, but that there's truth in that. This idea of fear God, you won't fear men, or uh, only God can judge me. And most people use that to, to justify their sin. <laughs> a little sentious lifestyle. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let he God, will judge you. Let yeah. God be God, another great truism that people use to say. God will judge you. I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm lazy, let God be God. <laughs> right, so there's a lot of nominal Christianity around that drags through the mud very good statements by the example and evidence of their lifestyle. That being said, the reason it matters that he's king is because you answer to him only at the end of the day. So you should punch your timesheet, be honest with your employer, love your wife, raise your children, but you do all that. You got a timesheet? To the king. I do have a timesheet. You punch it. Um, <laughs> I, so when I fill it out on my computer, I'm I was, working in the 70s. <laughs> when, I, when I submit my time via computer, I punch the yeah, computer. There you go. Yeah, you punch time. it. Yeah. So the point is uh, that Jesus is truly Lord and King. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, yeah. and that uh, your fear, and fear being rest- ultimately, sure, there's an aspect of actual like that's scary, but that, that's not really the main thrust, that your respect and your adoration and your purpose um, go to him. Yeah, so at the very at the very basement definition of Lord means he gets to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. That means his desires are my desires. What he hates, I hate. What he loves, I love. Uh, that's what it, what's what it means to be governed by his word. That means what's in it, I seek to do. I seek to be transformed into. This may be a bit of a low blow. <laughs> but I said the Presbyterian thing is going to come up. Uh, that's because I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> it's because I'm going to bring it up. I don't think... I'd have to look... I don't think... Um, they add one point from the first London, but I can't remember which one it is. Yeah, me neither. I'd have to look. Why don't you look? Why don't you look that up? Okay. 
since you brought it up. Well, the thing I was going to bring up about the Presbyterian disagreement we have about, about who receives baptism is it's very consistent to believe that those who receive this covenant sign are in the covenant. The Baptist articulation of this is that those that are in the covenant are the ones that Christ died for. Yeah. 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 So they like to cite, just so you brought this up, it would be great. They like to cite, well, the new covenant's better. So therefore, why wouldn't it include more people? That just means it's wider if you just say that your children are in it apart from regeneration. Yeah. That doesn't make it better. No. It's better because it's secured by Christ and that there is there is no room for disobedience to it or unfulfilling to it. It will be fulfilled. It will be brought about. All those that that are in the covenant are obedient. That's not like the old covenant. Okay, that's that's what makes the new covenant better. It's secured upon better promises. Hebrews says the better promises is the finished work, not new promises. Better in the sense of fulfilled. So that's what that means. Um, I get I get tired of hearing that as an argument. Personally, it's like oh, it's, yeah, it's new and it's new okay, and better. So to be fair, I understand it. It's yeah. very not well thought out. I'm just going to level with you. Like, there's some Baptist arguments that aren't very well thought out either. I agree. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of those, and I, I submit <laughs> to the fact that there's not a, there's some dialogue that's wasted in this debate. That is the worst point I've ever heard. I'm just going to level <laughs> like if you want to make an argument that it's better, and you base it on that that grounds, it's like, did you even think before you talked? <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, that just that kills me too. Um, and again, it's similar to kind of the simplistic Baptist argument of that's not in the New Testament. Like that's not what they're saying anyway, yeah. right? So it's like we. I understand. I'm not. I'm not just firing all my artillery at the Presbyterian side saying. Fuck. I'm saying it's it's easy to do that in an echo chamber of people that agree with you, right? Mm, that's a good point. When examined by someone who disagrees with you, who can say this is the reason that's dumb, right? Yeah, it's in, it's important. So, so it's the same thing. Like I used to be real big on that Baptist argument, and I still am in one way. But in another way, I understand that we're really not making any progress in this conversation. For me to just say household means uh, whatever, right? That that it's not explicitly stated in the New Testament. Ergo, I win the conversation, right? And they're they're rolling their eyes because that's a stupid, simplistic Baptist argument. Just like I roll my eyes to say that the New Covenant is better because what, what? Because you because children of believers are included, right? That's the the other gender is included, right? More expansive. It's more expansive. That just means it's wider. That doesn't mean it's better. Yeah, it's just, better because all those that are in it are regenerate. It, yeah, it's better. It's because actually better because the obedience it, is secured upon Christ. It's better yeah. because atonement's actually made, and it's better because there is no visible element anymore. Yeah. yeah. Why did you bring this up again? I brought it up to say that it's cons- <laughs> it's consistent with limited atonement to be a Baptist. As much as so Baptists aren't oh. reformed, only Presbyterians are reformed. We got Calvin in our back pocket. You guys are done for. Uh, you're a you're a historical anomaly. All those arguments. Okay, this is a very nuanced group we may appeal to with this particular section. <laughs> that being said, it's a real group. It's a real struggle between brothers that have disagreements. All those things that say Baptists are Johnny Come Latelys. And uh, they they do violence to the tradition. Who says uh, that? Does somebody say that? Is that a Brit herring? <laughs> no, I think that's. I think some people yeah, do. Some I don't people think most it. people say that. But I no, think mo- I think most people are kind of like us and say, "Yeah, it's, 
I think it's a worthy debate, but mm. hey, we're brothers. We love each other, right? That That's really more common. But there is a pretty radical wing out there that would say, like, Baptists aren't Reformed and we hate them, right? I don't know that they should say at this point we should drown them. But in, in, the, in, in the past, that certainly was done. Oh, well, you've opened up a can of worms, though. That, that was done. That was done by men I greatly love and respect for their... It was done by one man that you greatly love and respect. It's true. And I do love one. Him. It was one. Yeah. But ostr- okay. How about <laughs> how about ostracizing them? Okay. Yeah, okay. Good enough. Yeah. Which I would never do. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. That's the reason that the doctrine <sighs> the doctrine of Christian liberty is the most now Waldron and uh, Renahan both agree upon this. That's the most overlooked doctrine in this whole confession. That's that's why they said that the liberty of conscience in sola scriptura was the was the main reason of why the Reformation came about. That's what justified it. Here's an interesting, which I, I don't think this means anything as far as some kind of substantive disagreement. Here's an interesting difference. Now, I was looking for one thing and couldn't find it, what you asked for. So, But I will <laughs> say a difference in point eight uh, between the Westminster Savoy and, of course, the 1689. In the 1689, they add that all the free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. Um, I think that's from the first London. Maybe that was it. I think that's uh, what it is. I should write so this stuff down. It's but. not. Uh, maybe that was what you were looking for. Yeah. But that's that's. I mean, there are minor, very minor differences in this section between Westminster Savoy and 1689. Mm-hmm. 16, yeah. 1689 adds 0.9 and ten. That's not in the Westminster. That's that's what's from First London then nine okay. and ten. So that that idea of prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. So they confess that. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking of. Was in Which First again, London. I think both those. Uh, Adherence to those confessions would believe all that. Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. no doubt. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think I think the reason Reed. the reason I brought up the Presbyterian Baptist the Presbyterian uh, for one I like for one I like to give a little poke in the eye when I can because it's kind of fun because they do it to me all the time <laughs> they do it to me all the time yeah I do get tired of being poked all the time they're always poking the Baptist bear <laughs> right? um, maybe so, it's a teddy bear probably but it's a very gushy. Yeah, <laughs> it's like if you if you filled a teddy bear with kinetic sand. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so I critique my own movement way more. So yeah, anyway, yeah. I would agree. Baptist with, is way too broad of a term. Yeah, I yeah. would agree with the Presbyterian sentiment that the majority of the Baptist representatives today are definitely not Reformed, and they they have stepped outside of orthodoxy in a lot of ways, and they've also stepped outside of like any type of Reformed traditional practice of worship. So on that ground, I'm like yay and amen. <laughs> But not me. <laughs> Here I stand on the Baptist tradition. <laughs> I think uh, this one's going a field. Th- is that so? Did you want to say anything else about that? Because we kind of, as always, you're. Yeah. Well, that was for time. Well, you, I'm not pressed for. T- it's just that you're you're going off in the issues which are not pertaining <laughs> to Christ the mediator. Okay, here's let me let me wrap it up. I'm just trying to make this quality stuff here. Okay, let me wrap up. Hey, people love conversation. Okay, well, good. Let me wrap it up with the bow. What I was trying to say about the Presbyterian Baptist brotherly disagreement. <coughs> Excuse me. If limited atonement, and actual redemption, actual union with Christ is in any way seen as covenantal, then the Baptist position logically makes sense. Now, I understand the nuance of the Presbyterian position that the covenant is is wider and, and based on Abrahamic preconceptions, basically. Okay, I get that. 
and I understand that they would not they would not disagree with me in one way when I say that. Nonetheless, I think it does logically follow the reformed understanding of atonement to say that those who are in the new covenant and receive the new covenant sign are those who Christ purchased. We understand the the that that we are um, and that's why the confession talks about visible saints that we in, we can fallibly that is with error we can administer that wrongly um, in good conscience we can do so and mess up and so it, do the apostles so do the apostles to Simon the magician mm-hmm. amen <laughs> so, so <laughs> nonetheless I think, I think yeah. again kind of in, hopefully if any Presbyterians are out there listening in good conscience. Yeah, a little poke in the eye, because my eye hurts. So just like my the, eye hurts a lot, I get poked all the yeah, time. Yeah, so just like the Baptist uh, position of the sacramentology, there's a wide variety of of the Pado Baptists. So it's not it's yeah. not like you can just say this is Presbyterian. True yeah. covenant but, theology. This I guess, is Presbyterian I guess more practice. More more accurately, Pado Baptist. Yeah, so you you can have a spectrum of that. So one on the on one end. So if you're a Baptist on one end of that, you're going to be like baptism regeneration. Mm. On the other end of Pedo baptism on on the on one end you're going to be like federal vision, yeah. so this is pretty much imparted faith from the parents. Uh, on the other end you're going to say this is secured because Christ has made specific promises to your children and they will be regenerated. At least they have that that conscience in that right. But we'll, we'll get into that probably at the baptism episode later. Yeah, understanding the nuances of 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 those things. No. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not appropriate for this episode, Mitch. Sorry. But I, I agree with you. Limited atonement, I think, is more conducive, more logically consistent with the bad disposition. Baptism of the Lord's Supper is chapter 28. Baptism is chapter 29. All I'm saying is we got a while. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got a prime, uh, yeah. the pump. Okay. Good enough. How hard is that? Yeah. Next chapter is of free will. Yeah. You don't have any. <laughs> that's not what it says. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. No, no, we're gonna they're gonna properly understand. So if you you've probably heard that reformed people don't believe in free will. That's not true. No. Uh, we'll define it biblically, we'll we'll expand it biblically, and we'll look at it uh from the confession's point of view of what free will is. Yeah. It's coming up next. Is that chapter nine? Chapter nine. Chapter nine. Closing remarks. Um Go home and meditate upon that chapter. What if uh, they're already home? <laughs> Just start meditating where you at then, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Just go ahead and start. Meditate no, right there. No need to travel back home. Make Just... your chair an altar. <laughs> <laughs> Don't oh, you hate that'd that? That'd be good. Yeah. Don't you hate that? Once you that? do that, meditate. That'd be great. Gosh. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so you can meditate med- with, meditate without upon, every head bowed and eye closed. But with uh, med- meditate on chapter eight, there. I don't. I'm sorry. You, you do a lot of eye poking yourself. Seems like seems like That's you're true. poking a lot of people right now. Poking them. Chapter eight. So read read that. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> meditate upon the truths of there of it. Don't just listen to it. Get the definitions. Meditate upon it deeply. Yeah. Because in it you'll find Christ in all His glory. Yeah. And not to poke any eyes. Not to poke any. There's no redeeming it, man. You've already, you've done, the damage is done. Your eyes are poked. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just say you were joking and move on. I was just kidding. But you can't make your chair an altar, though. <laughs> that's not how that works. Yeah, that's, that's traditionally why they had pulpits. 
That's also not an altar. Yeah, not an altar. Well, it goes from an altar to a pulpit. That's what I'm saying. Medieval church had an altar for the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. The Protestant church has a pulpit to say this is what's coming forth yeah, in the presence of Christ. The Protestant position is that's not an altar. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> and yep. now we're back to the altar. Yeah, just 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 play the music, man. Thank you for being with us. Forgive Avery and his rude eye poking. <laughs> yeah. Join us next time for a free will. God bless you as you go forward. <laughs>